you realize that's the last letter the Apostle Paul writes. The great apostle will put down his pen when he finishes 2 Timothy. And so we have this final word from him, and he's telling Timothy, a younger pastor, this is how you pastor, this is how you minister. And you, you hear this, and you recognize that Paul is saying, well, this is why I'm suffering. And he is in prison, even as he writes for the sake of Christ. And yet he's going to write to spur Timothy on towards love and good deeds. And so in this final month that I have with you to be able to share with you, I just want to spend one message on 2 Timothy, and specifically one verse, chapter 2, verse 8. And we're going to focus on that. And then we're going to be looking at some psalms and, and just finish up with uh, this beautiful psalm from, uh, from David of Psalm 23 at the end of the month. So that's the plan. What I want to do before uh, we have a time of prayer, I do want to call your attention to the card that's on your table. And again, it's not because I want you to see my picture. But the reason why we give you this card is we do want you to pray and when you see it, when you look at it, please don't just pray for me and for Sherry, but pray for the pastors who are in Australia that they would guard the good deposit that God has given them. That was Paul's charge to Timothy. It's his charge to me and to every pastor that preaches the gospel. That's what we need to do. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is uh, you'll have this is just for Suey Church, this card is that we do have a Holy Land tour planned for next year. I mentioned that one of the things I want to do with Sparrow is to be able to take younger ministers, but we'll also involve uh, anyone else who would like to go. And again, the numbers are always going to be limited. We keep it to one bus, but we have redone the tour that we're going to do in 2020. So we had a great tour planned in 2020. We were going to leave in April. And March, we were shut down in 2020. Some of you may remember that distant memory. We'd established that tour, and now we've got that reestablished. And so we have the dates, we have the bookings, and so if we get sufficient numbers, we will go on the tour. And those who are signed up for 2020, by the way, there will be, I've talked with Julie at Shekinah, and she will give an incentive to those who had previously had their tour canceled. So that's there. And if you want information, go again to our website at info at sparrowministries.com. And in two weeks, we'll have just a brief after the service, just a chat to show you exactly what we're going to be doing, where we're going to be staying, and hopefully we'll have some costing on it. Right now, we have the reservations up. So I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to what God has for us in the future. And I want to talk about 2 Timothy right now. But before I do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to exalt your name right now. We want to recognize how much you love us, that you gave yourself for us, you laid down your life for sinners like us. And when we recognize that we were not worthy or deserving, we come in humility before the cross of Christ. And we bring our burdens and we bring our sins those thoughts, words, actions that do not honor you. And Lord, we ask for grace 
We ask for forgiveness. And we thank you that your grace is sufficient right now. Lord, for these dear people, you know what's going through their lives. The trials, the joys, the concerns. I pray that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, would guard their hearts and minds. Father, we have interceded on behalf of this world again and again, and we would keep interceding. We pray for peace in Ukraine. We pray for government leaders and those in authority for wisdom. And we pray that we would be faithful to support, to encourage godliness, peace, and Father, the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. So we thank you for our missionaries that we have sent out who are faithfully serving you on the field right now. Father, we also want to thank you for your word, and I, in particular, want to thank you for the Apostle Paul and his commitment, his encouragement, his inspiration to me and so many others who simply read his words and see his heart. And I pray that you would be glorified as we open your word right now. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, I ask you to indulge me occasionally on certain things. So this is a Texas thing, okay? So Texas is the Alamo State, and, and I'm going to give you just a picture of the, the modern Alamo, but uh, the deal that made the, the Alamo famous was on March 6, 1836. There was 12 days of siege. General Santa Ana has seized the Alamo. Now, there are 182 men there who are there to fight, and they are fighting for the liberty of Texas. And how many of them die? 182. All of them give their lives. Everybody dies in the Alamo, except there's you know, a couple of women and children. They survive, but the fact is all the men die. They all are killed. And yet, about six weeks after that, there's another battlefield, and Sam Houston is the general, and it's called San Jacinto. And on that battlefield, this time the Texans are going to win. And their battle cry is what? What is it? You know it. Remember the Alamo. In other words, remember the sacrifice, remember the dedication, remember the devotion, remember they gave their lives for us, therefore we will fight with fierceness and determination. So the battle lasts all of a half hour, and the Texans capture or kill every combatant, every one of them. Remember the Alamo. It inspires, it gives Texans identity. And again, if you're a native Texan, as, as I am, you want to remember the Alamo. Now, let's, let's come back to Australia, because we do something similar. So the 25th of April, what is that? Anzac Day. What does that commemorate? What happened on the 25th of April, 1915? The Anzacs land in Gallipoli. Great victory, right? No, it was a massacre. The Anzacs are mowed down. These young men, who are all volunteers, they are just mowed down. 
They are devoted. They sacrifice their lives. And the spirit of the insects is that devotion, that commitment, even when it looks to be certain death, because they saw the ones that went over the wall before them. So what do we do? Each year, we commemorate Anzac Day. So here's at King's Park, and as you know, we'll see thousands and thousands come out at dawn on a public holiday, but at dawn, they will come out to remember the Anzacs, and so we remember Gallipoli, the sacrifice, the devotion. As a nation, it gives us focus. Now, what is the battle cry for Christians? It's very simple. Remember Jesus Christ. That's it. Those three words. And so the Apostle Paul is going to inspire Timothy, this young pastor who is timid, we know, young, timid, and yet he's going to inspire him in 2 Timothy with these words, remember Jesus Christ. And for Timothy, it's not as if he doesn't know the name. It's not as if he's never you know, heard of Jesus or he's going to have a tendency to forget the name. That's not the point, right? Paul is pointing to something much deeper, much more spiritual, much more devoted and passionate. You remember who Jesus is and you remember what he did. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to begin reading in verse 10. I'm sorry, uh, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is going to speak again to Timothy. And I'm going to ask you to stand. And take to heart the words of the Apostle Paul as we see them on the screen. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. And then we come to verse 6. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. And here's the phrase. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What he's going to do is give him that battle cry. And even gives that image of a soldier, the hardworking farmer. That's our discipline. We preach Christ Jesus. You may be seated. What I want to do is get you to think about how this should inspire you as a follower of Jesus Christ. How it should inspire us as a church. 
And so it begins with this phrase, remember Jesus Christ. So you know that Christ is not his surname. That's a title. It's the anointed one. It's the Messiah. So here's the first point. Remember Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In other words, Christ, the anointed one. Christ, Messiah. Remember him. Now, let me go back to Matthew chapter 16, because I want to go back to where we hear a very clear statement of identification of who Jesus is. So in Matthew chapter 16, we're in Caesarea Philippi, and I'm going to look at verses uh, 13 and 14. And we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, or some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so let's go to Caesarea Philippi. I've got a, a picture of the, what they depicted it would be looking like in that day. So you see these temples and so forth. You see these uh, crevices in the walls as well, and they can be seen in modern day still. The temples are not there, but you still see the crevices, and you see that big um, that's a, a waterway. There's a water that comes out of there, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But that big gap in the wall is often perceived as that entrance into hell itself. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment, because in all of these cracks and all of these crevices, these uh, things that they design, there would be idols. There would be gods that you could worship, and there was a pantheon of gods. So you would go to Caesarea Philippi, and you just pick your demon that you want to worship. That's what you do. Which demon do I want to worship today? Or you can worship them all because they're all there. You just worship this one, and then you can worship this one, and then you can worship this one. They're all there. So it's a supermarket of gods, little g. Gods, little g. It's a supermarket. There's a bunch of them. And in that context, Jesus is going to say, now, who do people say I am? And notice there's a bunch of options, aren't there? Well, some are going to say John the Baptist. Others are going to say Elijah. Others are going to say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I mean, there's a lot of different choices. People have a lot of different things as they look at you and think of who you are, Jesus. And then we see how Jesus follows up with that because that's who people say he is. And there's a variety of answers, just like there's a variety of gods in Caesarea Philippi. But he asks this question, verse 15. But what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered. Of course, Simon Peter always will speak up first. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. The son of the living God. You get it? Connect the passages. Remember Jesus Christ, Messiah. And this is how he's identified. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, what I want you to do is uh, think back and think, how do people refer to Jesus today? How do they think of him? Well, again, there's a supermarket of ideas going out there. Well, he's a tragic hero, a moral teacher, an inspiration, a godly man, a prophet, whatever you want to say. But then we need to come down to the question Jesus asked his disciples, 
who do you say I am? Yeah, in the world around us, people say a lot of nice things about Jesus, and they'll describe in a lot of different ways, but who do you say that I am? Peter correctly identifies Jesus, right? That's not even flesh and blood that that told him that. That comes from the Spirit of God recognizing Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' declaration is this. You've identified me correctly. And by the way, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. If we can go back to that, um, that modern-day picture of Caesarea Philippi, now I want to talk about the gates of Hades. So that, that gap is still there. And that would often perceive, that was a, a central temple there of worship. It was often perceived as the gateway to hell itself. And as a gateway, gates in the ancient world, those were the place of greatest strength. Any city, if they were a walled city, they would have to have a gate And that would be the most vulnerable point, so it had to be the most protected. The strongest uh, defense of the city would be at the gate. And so when Jesus say, in the gates of hell, he could be pointing right at that place, right at that place, and say, the gates of hell, the strength of hell itself, will not overcome what I am going to do. Well, what's he going to do? I, Jesus will build my church. So one of the things we've got to recognize, if Jesus is going to build his church, he's going to build his church. Now here's the beauty. Of, we get to participate in that. We get the joy of participating in that. But he is not dependent upon me because he's going to build his church. He said he would. He's not dependent upon you, but we get to be used by God to build the church of Jesus Christ. What an amazing privilege. But Jesus said, I will build my church. When you hear that, that ought to inspire confidence for this church and every church that preaches the gospel because we know Jesus will build his church. He said he would. And then what does he say after that? And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. No power of darkness, the strength of of every demonic army itself will not prevail against what Jesus Christ is going to do. Remember Jesus Christ. You got it. You remember Jesus Christ, and he will build his church. It's a call to action. We don't just sit back and say, well, Jesus, we'll sit back and just watch. Because you see what we read from Paul to Timothy is you need to guard the gospel. You need to pass on to faithful people what you have learned and heard from me. You are part of this, Timothy. But Jesus will build his church. I'll guarantee you, he will build his church. And nothing will stop it. I want to be on that team. I'm just telling you. I want to be on that team. I want to worship that Lord. Not the pantheon of gods at their accessory of Philippi. I want to worship that one as Lord and King. Remember Jesus Christ, Messiah. Here's the second point. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Again in verse 8, you'll notice this. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Now, raised from the dead. Why is that in there? 
why do, why, we no, don't need to ignore dead. And by the way, we believe in a resurrected Lord, but there's no resurrection without a death, right? Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that's sufficient to say. In Second, uh, 1 Timothy 2.2, Paul says this to the Corinthian church, when I was among you, I was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And sometimes we'll say, well, Paul, what about the resurrection? He's going to write about that later in chapter 15. But what about the resurrection? What do you mean you didn't know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified? And here's what you and I need to know. The crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are theologically one event. Chronologically, it's separated. Friday, he dies on Good Friday. He is resurrected on the first day of the week. Chronologically, there's a separation, but theologically, it's one event. So when I preach Jesus Christ crucified, he doesn't stay in the grave. He's always raised from the dead. And so when we proclaim the resurrection, we are not denying the cross of Christ. It's theologically one event. Here's what the cross does, the cross and the resurrection. They become central to our identity. The central symbol of Christianity is and always will be the cross. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the central symbol of our faith. It's what's on this church, and it's what's on any follower of Christ. We recognize the cross of Christ. That's our key symbol. The key day, of course, is the first day of the week, Resurrection Day. Let me just talk uh, briefly about a gentleman that really helped me. I met him once, but, but that's not the big deal. The big deal is that he discipled me through a book that he wrote. So this is John Stott. And he wrote this book called The Cross of Christ. And I remember very early on when I became a pastor, I, I received this book, it's brand new, hot off the presses, and I just started reading it and devouring it and recognizing the centrality of the cross of Christ and what it means to me and what it means to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to preach Christ crucified, but he is that resurrected Lord. So what it does first, it gives us that key identity. And our identity is to remember Jesus Christ cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. One of the interesting books I've read recently was a book by Eugene Peterson called The Pastor, and he talks about a time in his life when he, he was um, having a ministry to an artistic community. And, and what he said is, all of these people, they were bartenders, they were waiter, waitresses, they were cleaners or whatever. That's what they would do to make a living. But if you ask them who they are, they would say, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. In their very core of their being, they are an artist. And that what they do on this side job, that's what they do to feed themselves. But who they are, they are an artist. Now, what I want you to think about us when we remember Jesus Christ, we can have many occupations and jobs or whatever, but who we are in the core of our being, we are followers of Jesus Christ. We are Christians. Now, I get it in Australia. The popular thing to do right now is to tick that box that says no religion. That's, that shows super coolness, I suppose. 
but I will only tick the box that says follower of Jesus Christ, Christian. That's all I want to be known as. It's my identity. The other thing that this does is this. It inspires us to persevere. So I'm going to go to the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. The apostle Paul says this as he finishes his great chapter on the resurrection. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Why is it not in vain? Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why is it not in vain? Because God is with us. But what's going on with the apostle Paul? Does that mean whenever we claim Christ that we have this amazing victory every time we hold on to Christ and hold on to the gospel? It's interesting, if you look back at verse 9, he says at the end of verse 8, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. So he knows he's in prison, he knows he's in chains. Why? Well, I guess he wasn't cool enough for the Romans. He didn't tick the right box. Because if he would have said, no, we'll just have Christianity and they're all the same. You know, all religions are about the same, so don't worry about it. But he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified alone as the way, the truth, and the life. And as a result, he ends up chained for the gospel's sake. That's the point. He could have gotten out of there if he just would have softened the message, but he's going to point to Jesus Christ, and this is not going to be popular in our world. Let's face it, because if you want to be accepted, you do not want to say to somebody, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And yet, Jesus is the one who told me that. And Jesus is the one we follow. So we proclaim this gospel. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the hope of the world. This is why Paul's in chains. Just get it. He's in chains for preaching that. And so he says to Timothy, here's what you need to do. Here's our battle cry. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. For pastors... For congregations, labor is not in vain. And so we have this sense of confidence because Jesus will build his church. And we have this sense of confidence because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I get it as a church, we're in a time of transition. I'm fully aware of that. But our labor is not in vain because we remember Jesus Christ Here's the third point. Remember Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Now here's where I'm going to come with at that. So we've got this thought. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And, and as I was studying this, uh, this week, again, just meditating on this one verse, you have this interesting concept in verse 8. Raised from the dead, so again, from the ground, raised up, but coming down from David, so descended from David. 
So what's going on there? He's part of that messianic line. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. He is the ultimate Davidic king. That's who he is. And he is that human incarnation. He is God. He is God in human flesh. But another idea that comes from, uh, descended from David is this. David was that shepherd king. We all know that. And he shepherded God's people, Israel. And the greatest tragedy of his life was when he stopped being the shepherd king. When he took Bathsheba, instead of loving the sheep and caring for the sheep and leading the sheep, he stole her. And that becomes the greatest downfall of his life. But David is going to remind us of being that shepherd king. One of the things that we recognize and what Timothy needs to recognize is this. When you remember Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, it's our call as pastors, as elders, to be shepherds of God's flock. That's a clear New Testament teaching. It defines our style of leadership. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. And then he says, my sheep know my voice, they follow me. We are not deceived. We have one Lord, one Savior, one hope. We hear his voice and we follow him. We do not forget him. We remember Jesus Christ. I want to talk about shepherding a little bit. And let me give you a picture of a modern-day shepherd, Middle Eastern shepherd. So obviously you see the shepherd. The shepherds wear in relationship to the sheep. Shepherd leads the sheep. That's what shepherds do. They lead. They out front. They lead. There's a story about a guy who was there in the Middle East, and they saw, he saw this, this guy, and he was driving the sheep. And, and he walks up to him, and he says, you know, I understood that shepherds always lead the sheep from the front, but you're driving the sheep. Why is that? And the man says, well, that's just it. I'm not the shepherd. I'm the butcher. Butchers may drive whatever, but shepherds lead. That's the point. They always lead, and they do it in a shepherding, sacrificial way. That's how they do it. When there's love for the chief shepherd, there's a love for his flock. And that's the reality. So what we see in verse 10, look at this once again. Therefore, Paul says, if there's love for this chief shepherd, there's love for Jesus Christ, there will be love for the flock. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Who is that? That's those people that God has chosen in Christ Jesus in Ephesians before the beginning of time. He chose me. He chose you if you're in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, I'm going to do everything for those people because he loves the flock. That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In other words, I'm going to proclaim boldly the gospel because there are people out there, when they hear the gospel, the Spirit of God is going to work in their hearts and lives, and they will believe. I promise you there's people out there today until the Lord comes. When we share the gospel, they won't all believe, but there will be some. And we preach it faithfully. And we preach Christ Jesus, and they will come to faith. Let me just talk with you. It's 
we think about how to pray, because I think 2 Timothy is an amazing prayer guide to churches. I think for pastors, it's a book we've got to be in again and again and again. But for a congregation, it's a book that we need to use as a prayer guide for our church and for our pastors. What do I mean by that? So what I'm going to ask you to do by way of application is this week, read 2 Timothy. Now, if you look at it, it's not that big. It's just a few pages in my Bible. There's four chapters. You've got the whole week to read it. But I want you to read it in a, a prayerful way. How do I pray for my church? How do I pray for my pastors? And let me give you just certain things that I'm going to point out as being prayer guides that are, you know, just jump out at me. So Paul says to Timothy, first, guard the gospel in chapter 1, verse 14. That's your job, pastor. You guard the gospel. You protect that. It cannot be one of the uh, pantheon of gods that are going on at Caesarea Philippi. There's one Lord, one hope, one gospel. You guard that. Second, make disciples. You teach reliable people. Who will teach others? But that's how we do it. We make disciples. We must be a disciple-making church. We make disciples in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, young adults, small groups. We make disciples. That's what we must do. Third, pastor, you need to be a worker correctly handling the word of truth. Why? Because this is God's word. And you've got to handle it correctly. One of the things that we've emphasized at this church, we are encouraging uh, some of our, our younger believers to get theological training so they, they might serve the Lord, but that theological training is there for them to correctly handle the word of truth. Fourth, chapter four, preach the word in and out of season. It doesn't matter whether it's popular or not. The season doesn't matter. You preach the word. And then finally, how do we pray for our pastors? How do we pray for our church? Pray the battle cry. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember his sacrifice for us. Remember his amazing love for us. But you keep in front of your eyesight, those eyes of faith, Jesus Christ. You remember him. You do not forget him. And I'm not thinking you're going to forget his name. I rem I'm saying he is your motivation. He is your identity. He is your focus. He is your passion. Remember Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for this amazing passage. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing love and devotion to us, Jesus the Good Shepherd. And we are your followers, the sheep of your pasture. And we love you, and we will hear your voice, and we will follow. And Lord, you promised to build your church, and we will be a part of that. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And for that, we look to you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.